Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the 2016 season firmly in the history books and having had a few weeks to let the dust settle on the pressure cooker that was the World Championship deciding Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, what better time to take a look back at what we all witnessed during the year? My name is Ed Straw, Editor-in-Chief of Autosport. On our four-man podcast today, we have a, a stronger team of F1 observers as you could hope to have. First up is Ben Anderson, Grand Prix editor of Autosport, always a favourite on social media. Lately, he's been getting all sorts of criticism for his driver top ten. You seem to have upset some Sergio Perez fans. So, so do you have an apology? Uh, no apology. Um, <laughs> I stand by everything I've written. Well, at least you're willing to stand by your principles. That was, of course, the, the contentious decision to, to rank Checo below teammate Nico Hülkenberg in the top 10. I, I imagine we may come back to that later on uh, in our discussion. Then we have Lawrence Barreto, who pounds the news beat in the F1 paddock. Lawrence, second season with Autosport. So do you reckon you've kicked on and you're ready for that, ready for that World Championship push now? Oh, definitely. I can't wait till uh, to kick in next year, see what, what happens with the new regulations. And our special guest is uh, former HRT and Lotus F1 driver Karun Chandok. Still waiting in hope for a call for a race seat for 2017? Well, there's a few going at the moment, so yeah. Always on. You know, phone's always on. The phone is on. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder where you are in the list. It's like, it's like those celebrity TV shows where you wonder how far down the list they have to go before getting certain people. Yeah, I suspect I'm a bit further down the list on, uh, on Toto's short list at the moment. But as we've established before, you are you are cheap. So Formula One season, <laughs> although you bought us, you bought us tea and biscuits. So I did bring you okay. tea and biscuits today, yeah. and we, we are very grateful for the second time. Exactly, yes, yes. So you're you're a pay podcaster, effectively. I'm a pay podcaster, <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll get you hooked. And then the only time anyone will ever want you for any broadcasting jobs is because you bring the tea and biscuits. You'll never be able to break. Just out don't of tell that. Channel Four that, will you? <laughs> oh dear. We can guarantee Channel 4 won't be listening. They'll, uh, they'll probably have better things to do with their own uh, all-singing, all-dancing review. So, Formula 1 season. That was, uh, that was an interesting one, wasn't it? It's difficult to know where to start, I guess. <laughs> Nico Rosberg, Lewis Hamilton. That was the story of the season. Nico Rosberg, world champion. The big talking point after, was he the worthy world champion? Was, was Lewis Hamilton robbed? Was there a conspiracy? Just to give away the ending, no, there wasn't. So, fair result. Are we all... Hailing Rosberg as a worthy champion or saying Lewis should have won it? Or could it be that actually Lewis was the slightly better Mercedes driver, but Nico can also be a worthy world champion? Is there a nuanced position? I think um, either driver would have been a deserving world champion. You know, I think it's, it's, 
unfair to say that Rosberg didn't deserve to be world champion. I think reliability issues have always been a part of Formula One. Uh, in fact, look at 2008, Lewis's first world championship. You know, he arguably won it because Massa's engine blew three laps to go in Budapest, which was a lot closer to the end than Lewis's blew in Malaysia, frankly. Yeah, very so, true. So, you know, I, th- I think that's always been a part of the sport and it, it always will be a part of the sport. It's less relevant now as the cars have gotten more reliable, I agree, to 20 years ago. Although, ironically, it's more impactful because of that, because you don't, you know... You get penalties. You're not going to have seven engine failures versus six in races. It's kind of one it, big one is more, yeah. co- is more costly. You know, look, the, the goalposts are changing, but ultimately, I don't think it's right to say that Nico didn't deserve to be world champion because he drove some great races, he drove some great qualifying laps, and he put the work in. You know, we went to pre-season testing, um, a lot of us were there, and, you know, I remember speaking to some of the engineers from from the tyre people, and they talked about how, obviously, the Mercedes was bulletproof and they're doing all this mileage, but they, I remember somebody saying to me that Nico did a lot more starts at the end of the pit lane than Lewis did, and if we look at this season, there's, what, five races where Lewis was on pole of the front row and and didn't lead? You know, we look at... You had Melbourne, you had Bahrain, you had Barcelona, Suzuka. Canada. Um, Canada. Although he recovered to win. Yeah, he recovered race. to win. But, you know, you had five races there where he was on pole of the front row and, and lost big, big ground. So, arguably, you know, Nico put in the hard work when he needed to. And Lewis put in the hard work on those starts after Suzuka. Lo and behold, he made great starts for the last few races. So, I think, you know... It just shows that Nico put a lot of effort into the season, and to me, he's a deserving world champion. That, that was the key differentiator. I mean, if you look at you know, how they performed through the year, I don't think Rosberg outdrove Hamilton. I think Hamilton was better in qualifying. He was better in the races, but he had more unreliability. That cost him. As you say, that's always been part of Formula One. It swings both ways. They both had failures the previous two seasons. The key thing from Hamilton's point of view is he kept messing up the starts. And if you factor back the points, he probably would have won under normal circumstances without those bad starts. Even with that Malaysian Grand Prix engine failure, he would have gone into the, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix leading the championship rather than chasing, and the result would have been very different. Uh, I'd agree with both Corinne and Ben, really. I think uh, Nico is a deserving world champion, um, but I think Lewis was the better of the two drivers on a, from a pure perform- performance point of view. Uh, you look at the stats, I think it was 10 wins, 12 poles, uh, so that's obviously better than any other driver. So when you look at it on in the cold, hard day, that's that's what proves that he was he had a strong season, the strongest season. And that's a big thing for me. You can be a worthy world champion and not have been the single best driver of the year. There have been plenty of worthy world champions who have not been the best individual performer of the year. That you know the cars play a big part, reliability, unreliability plays a part. But you know Rosberg didn't back into this world championship. Let's put it that way. You know it's not like Hamilton's car blew up on lap three of every race and he just had to cruise around. There are, as Karin said, some really good qualifying laps actually from Nico. You know qualifying has been a strength of his for quite quite some time. And in fact, when he was first with Mercedes, the qualifying performance was really impressive. And remember Ross Braun saying, right. You know, need to lift your game in the race is stringing it together and that was actually something Williams saw as well and he's worked with that that's the thing I I just like about Rosberg is he just always improves himself he has that ability he doesn't get knocked out you sort of looked at 2014 and I remember him saying after the race in Abu Dhabi he said no I'm going to come back next year stronger and that's what people say they all say it but he has you know Lewis Hamilton always talks about stuff making him stronger the adversity but actually Nico is kind of the living proof of that just hauling himself up improving time and time and time again and he got himself close enough to Hamilton so that with just a little bit of luck either way he was kind of in that that window just to reverse those positions it comes it comes a lot easier to Lewis doesn't it we can see that you know he just he just can fall back on that latent ability, or he doesn't have to stress himself so much to do the things necessary to win races and world championship. Rosberg has had to work so hard and so diligently, diligently just to to compete with with Hamilton. And really, this world championship is kind of the the reward for all that hard work through the years, balancing out qualifying, racing, improving the weaknesses, finding new ones, improving those, trying to put it all together. It's 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 taken a lot out of him, and he but he's got there in the end. So you know, fair play to him. People talk about what made the difference, Rosberg this year compared to previous years. For me, there's one thing 
that the Rosberg of 2016 did that the Rosberg of 15 or 14 couldn't do. The Rosberg of 14 and 15 could have built up that early lead, no problem. The Rosberg of 14 and 15 could then have lost that lead. But having lost the championship lead, I don't think that Rosberg could have got it back. And this is where I'm talking about that improvement. He sort of kept that focus and he was able to to kind of not be beaten in a way that he might have been before. I remember in 14, how many times in the back end of the season, once Hamilton had chipped away at that early advantage, did Rosberg throw away potentially race-winning positions? But I didn't see that fragility. And that, for me, is the big difference. I don't think his pace relative to Hamilton changed. I don't think his race performance has really changed. But I think that mentality, that mindset, that ability under pressure is the difference and that ability to when things go wrong reverse it even though I think he still struggles in races when things go wrong to turn it around but on the larger scale he's now been able to do that I mean his season was really reminiscent of Jensen 2009 wasn't it you know he built up the early lead and then he had to mentally hold it together and really was his to lose from that point onwards and mid-season it did look like he lost it you know massive what is it 62 point swing to Lewis in in the middle part of the season but I think you're absolutely right, Ed. He came back from the summer break in good form, made great starts, made the made the situations work for him, did what he had to do. He can't control, you know, there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion that we haven't seen a you know, a, a race where he's won in a wheel-to-wheel fight against Lewis. But it's not his fault that Lewis kept making bad starts and ended up further down the pack and it's not his fault that Lewis had reliability issues and had to start at the back. He did what he had to do to be world champion. And I look at Abu Dhabi, you know, he arrived there under huge amount of pressure, nothing to gain, everything to lose. Okay, gain meaning the world championship, but in the fight, everything to lose. It would have been so easy when Lewis was playing all those games to knock off his front wing. It would have been so easy to get mixed up with Verstappen uh, or Seb, you know. But he he held his nerve and, and again did what he had to do, which is, uh, I think, in some ways similar to Jensen. I think when they were under pressure, they're they're driving with this cloud over their heads of, I can't afford a DNF. And automatically, as a driver, psychologically, you you start playing a bit safer. You you do your qualifying laps at 95% to make sure you get in the front row rather than potentially locking up and ending up on row two or three. And I think the whole approach changed. But he did what he had to do to be world champion, and we can't underestimate that. I think, uh, well, Rosberg said himself, didn't he, at the FIA's prize-giving ceremony that he put a lot into mental approach for this year. Did some work pretty much since Austin last year when he lost that world championship to Hamilton, um, working on meditation, trying to work on his mental approach. And and he stressed that he did that. That's not just a... You go and do a session now and again. That's They're like really every day of it. your life. You're you're doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that rang true. And I think you saw the benefit of that work during the running, and particularly in Abu Dhabi, he was able to clear his mind of those those stresses and and deal with the pressure a lot better than the Rosberg of fourteen and fifteen would. But I think you know he benefited massively from Hamilton's poor run just after the summer break. Obviously, Spa was a tactical race in terms of pooling engines to get Hamilton back in the championship fight. Spa, Spa was a great weekend for Hamilton. It was a great weekend. It, it couldn't Hamilton, have gone yeah. better, really. And, but then he threw away, you know, Monza. He should have won. He was miles quicker than Rosberg in qualifying, but threw the race away. But Rosberg really won this championship for me. Uh, the next race is Singapore and Japan. Yep. He was he was mega in those two races. Singapore, he just, I, I think he had a, a small shunt early on in practice, maybe FP1 just took the nose off but after that he was he was I mean, awesome and, and Hamilton tenths to Lewis in qualifying that and, that, and that was on a weekend when Hamilton never really got it back together he had a, no. th- there was some problems in one of the sessions on Friday I think in FP2 and then he lost some tracks yeah there was a, there was a problem with recovered. the hydraulic but, valve but it wasn't but it wasn't like it was a that was a weekend ruining thing for for Hamilton so no. that, that was that was a really really strong and Rod, so Rosberg really capitalized on that that bit of momentum he he got just after the summer break particularly at Singapore and then Japan absolutely pivotal race where if he could if he could win he would take the destiny of the championship out of Hamilton's hands and it wouldn't depend on uh, Lewis's results for him to to be world champion and he he did the job in qualifying he did the job in the race Lewis tried a bit too much with the car to try and get one over on Rosberg and it, it backfired and I think you know, those two races for me show that Rosberg rose to the occasion he, he sensed his opportunity to become world champion and, and grasped it the Abu Dhabi finale, which some people seem to love, some people seem to hate. I thought it was a fantastic race. It was great. I thought Hamilton, I did, it, yeah. Hamilton did what, what he needed to do. He 
tried yeah. to create the conditions for Rosberg to mess it up. I wish and he Rosberg, did more, it, to be well, honest. Uh, plenty of drivers after the race were agreeing with that. Well, I, I mean, I, I was watching it with, with Mark Webber and we're sort of saying he's clearly mentally decided he's going to go this, this direction. He's going to upset the team. He's going to defy the team orders. So if you've decided that's what you're going to do, we heard the radio calls from Bono and from Paddy and all sorts. So if you're anywhere going to upset them, you might as well go the whole hog. And I would have liked to have seen him back them up even more earlier on. And then the last five laps completely back up the pack. I think there was some doubt in his mind, maybe, because, of, because of that pressure that Mercedes were creating by constantly instructing on the radio to speed up when they had said prior to the race that they weren't going to interfere at all in the title race. And I, I felt a bit disappointed by Mercedes in that race. I, I can understand them wanting to protect the one-two, but as Hamilton said, they were never really under threat. And having said, we're just going to let them race for the title, we've got the championship sewn up, to then try and interfere in that battle, yep. even if it's only in a small way, I thought that was a bit out of order, personally. And I think, you know, we often talk about Nico being incredibly intelligent and, and being the smarter and and... He is incredibly intelligent. But I thought Lewis drove a really smart race there because yeah. his when you were, you know, we were watching the sector times and in sector one he was mega because he knew he had to break DRS between turn seven and the eight nine chicane. And the only time that Rosberg did get into DRS range was right at the end when when Hamilton was like yeah. going to maximum yeah. Come on, ma- Vettel, pass him. Yeah. Pass I guess him. I guess it's maximum lack of attack, I yeah, guess he yeah. went to in that setting. And that's yeah. w- that's when he said, Right, I'm gonna just box it up and box him up and box him up into a smaller and smaller window. Yeah. And yeah, you know, Rosberg mean, probably sitting there saying, Oh god, do I need to try do I need to attack Hamilton? Do I need, oh. I mean Nick Nico was probably going as slow as Keki was back in eighty <laughs> two in <laughs> FWO eight to win his world championship. But, you know, as I said, I thought Hamilton he, he he pushed like hell, and then when he got to the 11, 12, 13 chicane, he just backed out of it. And he, you know, he I thought he drove a really, really intelligent race. And I think sometimes he doesn't get the credit he deserves for being that sort of thinking racer. Well, we've we've sort of talked up Rosberg quite a bit so far because the the kind of null position is that Hamilton's the better driver, which he has been this year. But I think it is worth talking about Hamilton a bit. I think Lawrence, you had him as your number one driver of the year. Is that is that correct? Yep, I did. Uh, when we when um, all of the team at Autosport picked out um, who we felt was number one driver, and I think he came top in the when we asked the team principals as well to vote, and we rank we collate all the scores and add them all up and. I just think from a pure statistics point of view, Lewis was the better driver um, this year. Um, he was he was stronger when he could do it. Yes, he made some mistakes at the start, um, but then every driver makes mistakes at other points. And then he was let down by the reliability, which possibly got into his head when he kind of constantly felt that it was always happening to him. He did seem to let that get to him a little bit, I think. And he didn't, yeah, and he didn't seem to react all that well to it. Um, I think you mentioned earlier there were some weekends where he just wasn't on it. Perhaps when something bad did happen, he couldn't bounce back in the way that he has done in the past. You can understand the frustration. I think uh, it was in Mexico. I was told that Mercedes had had thirteen over all their engine supply deals, so that includes the customer teams. And this was out of Mexico. They'd had thirteen serious power unit related problems. Now that some of these would have been ones people never heard about but serious problems that required things to be changed or fixed or whatever. And Lewis had had six of those 13 at that time. It was pure luck of the draw, or bad luck of the draw. Now, do we, do we think Hamilton was suggesting, he was suggesting there was something going on? You know, was, was he talking just in the in the sort of the slightly spiritual sense of, oh, it feels like the universe I is think against was. me? Or, yeah. was he, or was he seriously suggesting somebody was out to nobble him? No, no, I, th- I think he was talking in a sort of, this isn't my time, this isn't my year sort of thing. And I think... Um, you know that that unfortunately people on Fleet Street took it as being some form of controversial thing, and and they ran with it, and to, you know it, it got really taken out of context. And I felt bad for Lewis in that respect, and I think that led to his sort of outburst to the media in in Suzuka, and it all got you know the whole thing got really messy. And in many ways, you know those are that that sort of all fed. Rosberg's confidence in that period because as as Ben said when you look back at Nico's 10 years of Formula 1 and if you had to pick a high point it would be Singapore Suzuka I think Ben's absolutely right of those two weekends he was at his zenith and it was in some ways you know there were two weekends where Lewis was was off colour and off form in, as well wasn't he but um, I think I think Hamilton really, 
he he played up the the world is against me a little bit um after malaysia no question about it and and sometimes i you know it's hard but you have to accept that as part of the sport as i said before reliability issues you know if you speak to mansell or or prost or people from that time you know how many races and championships have they lost based on reliability issues i think you can understand hamilton's frustration in that moment because he's had oh, all the all yeah. the previous reliability yep. problems they've done all that work at spa to get him back in the game and he had no mercedes was saying he had a better pool of engines than rosberg by that stage and then he goes into the race in malaysia he's got a low mileage engine basically new he's told run it you know as much as you need to there's no problems nobody was expecting anything to go wrong with it or there was no management needing to be done during the race and then suddenly bang it just goes and these things happen but from Hamilton's point of view, in the context of everything else, you can understand why he's thinking, why me all the time? Is there something going on in Mercedes that for some reason, in terms of the engine production line, I'm getting the, the, uh, duff, the duff run? Uh, but I've ultimately, got I don't think he was really ever suggesting that you know, there was a conspiracy within the team to, to, uh, to do him over. I think he was just frustrated with the situation in that, in that moment. I do think unusually, I'm going to slightly disagree with Karun and unusually, slightly support the, the sort of Fleet Street interpretation. I think what Lewis said, it wasn't too great a leap to kind of conclude that he was trying to suggest there was something. So I think probably Lewis played a little bit of a part in that himself. I don't think he, I don't think he really meant it. I think it was, I do agree, it was that kind of ah, oh, just the world's against me. Yeah. Just it's it's not my time. But season, I, so, I sort of do like see that, why. Though. You know, sometimes it does happen. Sometimes people say things, and what they say is reported. And we get this all the time. Sometimes we get people complaining about. We report what they say, but ben, and yeah. and then they come back to you and they say, "Oh no, he didn't say that." And you say, "Well, his recording—it was, was taken he, out of context." He, he did say it. the context is correct. He might not have meant to say it. I, I understand yeah. that, but, but I think but, you practically, know, practically, you, you can't make it happen, though. Like, how can you? No, 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 you know, no. If no. you're Mercedes, there's no. You there's, can't make an engine blow up in the race and not in free practice. No, there's categorically nothing in it. It was yeah. pure. Luck of the draw. Yeah, he just couldn't understand why he'd had, you know, as Paddy Lowe said, almost fifty percent of the worst failures. Which no, is which is, the, which is fair. Which yeah. is. I mean that that yeah. And you would. The thing is, though, it's one of those. Especially in a race where you've got it sewn up, yep. you're going to turn yeah. the championship around, and then your teammate who gets spun round at the first corner somehow survives that and comes back <laughs> to finish. On I mean the that sight. I was standing in the pit lane, and he went by, and all of a sudden you couldn't. I couldn't quite see because he was on the other side of the pit wall, but the whole grandstand sort of stood up and turned left and you thought something's happened here and it was an extraordinary moment it really was i like the fact that it was a proper engine blow you don't see them very much anymore and i do wonder if lewis kept his foot in a bit longer remember when Kimmy, wasn't it um was it Kimmy back in the day every time in the 2005 when he yeah, that blow, bit, but and he'd keep his foot in the, it the other one was when uh korea when seb Vettel's engine went and he thought that was game over in the championship so he kept his foot in it was a proper spectacular engine failure I quite like those and I well, I, know, I know there wasn't much warning on the Hamilton one but well he lost oil pressure at the final corner didn't yeah, he so and, and he, didn't, he didn't pull off until the end of the following straight yeah. so he definitely kept going for as long as he possibly could exactly which which I, I, I respect that I like that but looking at some of the other sort of key moments in, in that fight obviously looking at the shape of the season Rosberg picked up where he left off at the back end of last year when Hamilton, after sealing the title in Austin, seemed to just throttle back a little bit. Who can blame him? The moment Rosberg lost the 15 championship was the time he started winning the following years. When he had a few race wins at the back end of last season, rolled that over with four race wins at the start of this year. And then you kind of had the first big flashpoint in Spain when they had the collision. And that that's a moment we've got to talk about. It was a, it was a Fantastic story for Formula One. Massively, uh, massively big stories have that happening of Verstappen winning. So, what, what do we make of what happened there? It's worth revisiting that incident. Perhaps Ben, if you just uh, just talk us through it, in case anybody's uh, forgotten and not watched on YouTube twenty times. <laughs> well, that incident kind of rolls everything up, doesn't it? Because you had uh, you had Hamilton on pole, but he messed up his start, which became a theme of the season. Rosberg gets ahead, uh, but Rosberg ends up in the wrong engine setting. Uh, wrong engine mode so he goes into turn three realizes this and works on the steering wheel to reset into the correct mode Hamilton spots the d-rate light the red flashing light at the back of Rosberg's car in the middle of turn three thinks this is my chance I can overtake him and get the lead back and make up for my bad start and Rosberg's no, already thinking about what's going to happen because he kind of this, he hedges his bets with that middle line well this is the key thing so you can see Hamilton knows he's messed the start up and it's impossible to overtake at Barcelona so this is his big chance 
Rosberg's already on to Hamilton. I think improving his awareness in races has been one of the things that Nico's worked on. He's looking in his mirrors, hovering in the middle of the track, and then basically as soon as Hamilton picked his line to overtake, on the inside coming out of turn three, Rosberg went to cover, uh, and the closing speed was so great, Hamilton ends up on the grass, loses control, clips the back of clips the back of Rosberg's car and takes them both out of the race. I mean, I saw it as a as a 50-50, to be honest. Um, I think the reality is Lewis could have backed out of it because when you're on the grass, well, that's probably the point to back out of it. <laughs> N- N- Nico could have squeezed him less and given him more room, arguably, but as Ben said, he didn't want to do that. So in the end, it was, was a 50-50. But it ended up being a net gain for Rosberg in the end because it was one less race for Lewis to close the deficit. And to me, the the point to pull out of all that was another bad start for Lewis, which potentially he should have used that as an opportunity to close seven points on Rosberg. And actually quite a good racing moment from Rosberg. Turn one at Barcelona is not an easy place to pass, even with that launch advantage. It wasn't like Rosberg was ahead, clearly. He still had yep. to do a little bit to do it. So yeah, I think yeah. if what happened between turn three and four hadn't have happened, we'd sort of be talking that as actually quite a good Rosberg moment where he did actually have to do some wheel-to-wheel stuff to, sh- to turn show, the tables. It shows that he's improved his, his awareness in races and his, his race craft. Like he, like Nicky Lauda talked about Rosberg being more aggressive this year than he had been previously. And I think you saw that at the start of Barcelona. He saw his opportunity and he did everything he could to take it. And then even in defence, like his move to, to block Hamilton was quite an aggressive defensive move. And I think Hamilton, knowing he'd made a mistake and was a bit desperate to make up for that mistake, probably was slightly over-eager in his attempts to overtake. So hence yeah. it was a 50-50. Yeah, but conversely, you talk about racing awareness, but Austria was dreadful. You know, he, he sort of just didn't turn and just, you know, blatantly kept going to a point with, with Lewis where it was just not going to happen. And, and that started with turn one, where he clouded the inside curb, lost momentum going up the hill. So I didn't, tell what, you, I didn't think he was perfect with this, but I think he was, he was genuinely trying to be more aggressive this year. Sure. So sometimes it worked out for him and other occasions sure. like there. And also Germany against Verstappen, it didn't work out and he, he got in trouble. To pick up on the Austria point, I just thought that that was at least the time where Rosberg was just trying to show that he wasn't going to get pushed around. And I think that's the same example was in Spain as well, that, yeah, OK, he hovered in that middle line, but he just kind of wanted to show Lewis that I'm not just going to let you have a, you know, have a go and get straight through. I'm going, to, I'm going to be here and I'm going to stick there. And OK, it didn't work out this time, but it actually worked out overall in the end anyway. This is it? something I think Rosberg's been aware of for a while. I'm trying to remember exactly when it was. I remember a few years ago in Bahrain when he did the over-aggressive defence yes a couple of times and I remember asking about that I said oh was that because he'd been accused of being soft in battle yeah before and I remember putting that to him and him being quite no no that was just me I think, but I think that's always been there in his mind that was 2011 wasn't it I think it goes back does it does it go back that fast yeah second yeah it was, it was around that that vicinity yeah, yeah they've, they've, those he upset Alonso I think yeah Alonso yeah. yeah um but that's always been in Rosberg's mind because he's not you know Lewis when he makes a pass it's it comes relatively easy to him he kind of the judgment's he, right there he, isn't he it? knows what the grip level is he knows what the car can do he can deal with anything if the car gets out of shape he, he's confident Nico a little bit struggles a little bit more in those which is actually why for me his pass on Verstappen in Abu Dhabi was, was probably the overtake of the year given what was at stake because that was not an especially Rosberg-esque moment you know it was quite simple in the end but anyway I, I digress he, he I think, judged it well didn't but he? I think That's Rosberg thing, yeah. I saw that again in Austria when he was trying to obviously last lap into the hairpin sort of well it, it was repassed effectively because he had effectively lost the position but that was just the move of somebody who knew they kind of needed to fight back there didn't really but know how didn't really have a feel for right I'm going to commit to the brakes there it wasn't the variables there were too many variables where the other car is how to pass him the grip level on the inside that he, he doesn't have that that capacity in those really high loading moments yeah when there's lots to, of stress to balance all those things which i think hamilton is arguably the best in the field at doing yeah but i think ben's point that he was more aggressive look at malaysia he's moving kimi typical, two. typical yeah, example, it was good. yeah but i thought he was i thought he didn't deserve a penalty for that one you know he's a bit argy bargy and he he leaned on kimi but i thought it was, it was quite a good aggressive move i'd right? call that racing incident yeah so did i but there were lots of people who disagreed, including the stewards, obviously. But uh, I was surprised how many other drivers well, in the I paddock thought, well, well, that was all, just over the line. But that all comes down to, you know, we have this thing about 
letting drivers race, etc. So I think within the within the context of they want oh, that's this a whole to happen, other podcast. Well, yeah, I, I think, we, we I think the, the problem with that move, if I remember rightly, is that Rosberg was just that little bit out of control, which is always he, he did the have the moment. He just had a bit of a lock up yeah. over the curb, and that bounced him into. Kimi. And the, the rear it, had a little wobble. If so he'd it, been yeah. completely in control of the car and they'd still been contact, I think you'd have said, you know, fair enough. It's just a racing incident. But there but was enough room for, for Kimi to get around that corner with Rosberg on the inside without going off the track comfortably. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. I think, but I think it's the loss of that slight loss of control of the car when you're being aggressive that, I'd agree with that. that, that probably the stewards have seen. It, it's a marginal call. It was certainly I think it more, hard... more blame on Rosberg's side, no question. Yeah. But, you know, that I'd say that's kind of in that thing where a racing incident doesn't have to be sort of 50 50, does it? There can be a no. bit more blame on one side. But I think that's a highlight... philosophical question anyway. But your point about Rosberg was being more aggressive and generally more effective, despite the Austria example. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think that you know that that sums it up. Like he, that move, he's trying to be more aggressive. He knows he needs to be because he's been bossed around by Hamilton too much in the past, and because it doesn't come naturally to him, he's going to occasionally go slightly over the line. And you just saw that on that occasion. Talking about the quality of the racecraft, Max Verstappen was pretty remarkable this year. Obviously, he was ultimately the main beneficiary of the Mercedes wipeout in Spain. He won that race on his first race for for Red Bull, which was a, an astonishing story for the for the sport. Although it did rely on the strategic switch with uh, with Ricardo and Verstappen on different strategies and that gave Verstappen the track position that was originally Ricardo's. But what do we make of Verstappen? He's had a fantastic season. Grand Prix winner now, delivering consistent results. He's got this Mad Max reputation, which I think is, is amusing, but I don't think it's entirely uh, merited, to be quite honest. I think he's been the start of the season in terms of, you know, he's clearly the fans' favourite um, he's he's made an immediate impact. If you look at the history of F1, and there's certain drivers who've arrived and made an impact straight away, Senna, Lewis, you know, Chandok. <laughs> I didn't hit anybody in the first race, <laughs> but um, you know, there's you only managed three laps. You hit a wall in the first race. Yeah. There you go, impact. Impact. No, but I think I think there's certain drivers who who've arrived. And grabbed all the headlines, and they're the ones that you talk about, you know, years down the line as well. And, and they and wind up the established drivers as well. That's and exactly the other and side they, of they establish. Well, they become one of the all-time greats. And I think I really hope Max gets a car that allows him to to be in that position to win races consistently and world champion. But outstanding season, dealt with a lot of pressure from outside. Um, very, very intelligent as well. I mean, I spoke to... I had a long conversation with Emmanuel Ipiro and Tom Christensen on two different occasions who were both stewards at races at various times about Max. And we talked about how well Max seems to know the rules and he flirts with the edge of being penalized and flirts with the edge of going over the limit, but but doesn't. And therefore, by the letter of the law, you can't penalize him. And And I think there's an intellect there that people sometimes... You know, because you look at, as I say, you look at what he does on track and it all looks a little bit kamikaze, but but it isn't. There's an absolute clear thought process and an intellect there that can't be underestimated. And I think, you know, very, very difficult to be dropped into a Red Bull from a Torosu. Different engine, different people, different systems, different electronics, different steering wheel layout, dashboard, recovery with the ERS, all of it's so different. And... He was there. You know, he was competitive straight out the box. And I think oh, that can't be underestimated. Yeah, he was He was massively impressive, I think, this year. I think there's still some rough edges, which you probably would, probably you'd, would you'd expect, expect with yeah. a driver that young and inexperienced. But the peaks were really impressive. And I think, for me, the most impressive drives were uh, Silverstone and Interlagos, both in the mixed conditions in the rain. Yep. He was really, really impressive taking the fight to Rosberg at Silverstone, splitting the Mercs. The way he dealt with the conditions... Uh, overtook Rosberg through the Maggots Beckett's complex on the outside, then managed his his battery to defend against Rosberg as it dried out, and obviously the power advantage of the Merck came more into play. And Interlagos in the rain, I mean that charge at the end from 14th to third was was mighty, wasn't it? You know, people kept saying, "Oh, he's using the karting lines," if there was some magic to it. You know, they pretty well, they've all done karting. The thing that I admired about that 
And I was around a bit in Abu Dhabi after this. I'm a fat amateur driver, or used to be. I know that you find grip in those sorts of places on track. So proper drivers certainly do. So why was he one of the only ones to commit to it? And that, that, it was just that confidence. You know, you, like when he passed Rosberg around the outside of turn three. Yep. You know, if something goes wrong, you're closer to the edge of the track, you're closer to disaster. So it's that confidence to say, yeah, I'm going to back myself. This comes back to what I'm talking about with Hamilton, that ability when... He's making an overtaking manoeuvre and he's on a different line and factoring in all these things. Verstappen has that capacity as well. I think there were two standout moments of that race uh, and they both actually involved Ricardo. One was Simon Rennie getting on the radio to Ricardo saying, Max is using the wet lines, I think you should. And I thought that's really telling. But, you know, towards the end of the race, you have to factor in that Max had tyres which had half the life of a lot of those people that he overtook. Uh, And also... People were really struggling with tyre temperature and Max and Daniel pitting on the safety car came up with hot, fresher tyres at the last stint. So really a lot of those other overtaking moves have a bit of an asterisk to yeah, it. Yeah, I agree with that. But yeah. the but one the on Daniel, similar tyre life, similar time they both pitted on the last safety car. He passed Daniel on the outside and finished just under 10 seconds ahead of him. Now Daniel Ricciardo, I mean by all accounts, is probably the best driver in the world, or at least your magazine yesterday this year says was, on the I cover. Think, yeah. And for him to do that, you know, it was it laid down a real marker of ability and, and, and I think within the team internally, it, it really it really boosted his reputation within the team. It's interesting to talk about to Ricardo about that race as well though, because before Verstappen did his his mega stint at the end, Ricardo was the fastest driver on the track. He had the fastest lap, a couple of tenths slower than Verstappen ultimately went. And Ricardo said in, in that last part of the race, he just couldn't see. So he had a problem with his visor. I think Lewis also had a problem with his visor earlier in the race. They have the, you would know about this, the Rain-X um, solution you put on to try and help the water dissipate so you can see better. Ricardo said, my visor wasn't working properly and that's why he couldn't drive to his potential. M- maybe that played into it. Maybe it's just an excuse. I don't know, but regardless certainly max's performance in that race was was one of those markers like you say an outstanding drive and that's the thing verstappen at his peak is just so mightily impressive it's just there's still obviously with the inexperience a few occasions where you know he makes a few errors or you know things get get away from him the other thing that has been mighty impressive from max is his tire management Barcelona, 36 laps in that final stint under pressure from Kimi. We know the Ferrari was very good at looking after tyres. Austria, 56 laps, you know, on single set of tyres. And Abu Dhabi. I mean, that first stint in Abu Dhabi, you know, we, as I said, when he spun at turn one, again, bit of that rough edge, perhaps, um, at the start of the race. But what he did after that on the set of super softs, going 21 laps on that first stint, um, the time management point, um, you know, you mentioned Max did some extraordinary things in that regard, um, but also so did Science in the in the Toro yes. Rosso, um, which would be less heralded because they were for low results. And I remember uh, interviewing James Key about Max, and he said that they did a lot of work pre-season at Barcelona with both drivers on specifically time management. Pretty much their whole program was focused on that because it was a weakness in 2015. So I think both Max and Carlos benefited from that. And you saw that come into play when then Max was in the Red Bull and was able to do those stints. And you thought, well, where do they came from? And I think they came from, from pre-season at Toro Rosso, really. The um, thing that I just wanted to point out was just the way that he deals with himself off track. I think you mentioned that he's a fan favourite, Corinne, earlier on. But um, there was a point in Austria last year when Pastor Maldonado had said something about Max that Max didn't quite enjoy. But he didn't say, oh, he didn't play it down or anything. He just said, well, I don't care what Pastor says. And he's always said that about what people, when people try to criticise him, he's never held back. He's never said that he's going to change the way he's going to do. He's stuck with it. And I think that's what people like about Max is that he's just come in, he's doing it his way and he's going to stick with it. And as we were saying earlier, he does it just about in line with the regulations. Were there any points of the season where anyone felt Verstappen went properly over the line? Because the general feeling, and a lot of people, is that he's constantly doing it. So does anyone have a, a point where they say, yeah, he's, he's just gone too far? I think Spa on the Kemmel Strait is the, the one that stands out. Even uh, those who are kind of his closest allies, people like Helmut Marko, Franz Tost, who've worked with him closely and, you know, his biggest supporters, they they felt that, you know, the way he blocked Raikkonen off on that straight at that speed was 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 out of order. 
there was a story behind that, wasn't there? Which which was largely missed at the time. I remember you did a a little small piece on it in Autosport magazine. So it's not not something that's been widely discussed. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Um, I was doing a, an in depth piece on Max and you know how he became how he came to become F1's most exciting driver, and that involved interviewing all these these people who'd been working with him closely within Red Bull, Toro Rosso, etc. And it was around the time that uh, Spa had just happened, so it was fresh in everyone's minds. And that incident was put. You know, mainly down to the first corner when Max, you know, he made a bad start from the front row, tried to recover at the first corner, dived inside Raikkonen, wasn't really aware that Vettel had turned in sharply on the outside line. They came together, and everyone felt that uh, Max was trying to get revenge on Ferrari basically for that incident. But Helmut Marco said actually the reason uh, Max was so aggressive with Kimi is because uh, when he was uh, racing with Kimi previous lap I think it was a previous lap or the lap before um, he tried to pass him on the brakes into Lacom and Kimi had gone off track in defending the position uh, had asked whether he should give it back and uh, Ferrari had said yes you should but he waited until the last possible moment to give it back so that he could then get DRS and get back past Max and Max took exception to basically those kind of dirty tactics on Kimi's part and that's why he was so aggressive with him. So again, all very calculated. That's the thing, you know, we were talking about Max having this reputation for being a bit mad and a bit crazy in wheel-to-wheel situations, but he's not. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's like Schumacher. Very intelligent. Yeah, very, very intelligent kid. It's, it's, it's like Schumacher, you know, he used to push the rules absolutely to their limit and basically dare the officials to, to slap him down. I, I just wonder, at the moment, Max has this, you know, fan favourite reputation, but I just wonder if it continues, whether people might start to you know, change that mindset because Schumacher was, became quite unpopular for some of his, you know, kind of more, should we say, nefarious moments in Formula 1. I do think, funnily enough, Spa's an interesting case with Verstappen because the thing there that actually I took exception to, not from a legal legality perspective where he should have been penalised, was the first corner thing. He was perfectly entitled to make the move he did, but it wasn't a percentage play. Let's not forget, he didn't score points in that race because of the damage he suffered from that. Sometimes as a driver, you've got to play the percentages. You can do something completely 100% legal. There's nothing wrong with him making that move. But the way things were laid out in front of him, it was going to cause him problems. And that, let's say he's in a championship fight next year, that's the, that's the kind of decision where you've got to know whether it's, uh, whether it's just that 1% too risky. You've got to weigh up in a championship fight all the risk versus reward. And I think that may be the area where if, if he's fighting for the championship, he he might still need to develop a little bit more. I think that's still the one, probably the one chief weakness that even Red Bull sees. Now, Marco says that Verstappen needs to learn to be a bit more patient. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it will come with, with experience. But if you see, you mentioned Spa, that's a good example of, oh, I've just made this mistake that could compromise my race, but I'm going to try and get it back immediately and ultimately undid him, although he was unlucky. But also Abu Dhabi, we talked about how great that stint was after the spin at turn one. But the reason he had that spin is because he was desperate to get back past the, the cars ahead, having yeah. made a bad start. And I just think he doesn't that, think that was, absolutely yeah, clearly in those no, I, total I, pressure I, moments where he's made a mistake yet. I agree. But he gets away with it. But but he's eighteen or whatever, you know. So exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in I just think in three or four years' time, he's going to be terrifying. It, I mean, yeah, the, the yeah. potential is absolutely terrifying. Even, even oh, massively, you know, we time. are talking about very very small little areas where he still has to improve. Yeah. So you know, this is this is tiny. This really, is the, we're, this we're, at this stage, we're talking about that. Some, a decision like that being the difference between winning the championship by two points or losing it by two yeah. points. But who's so, to say that when know, he's, if he was in Rosberg's position, for example, fighting for the championship, who's to say he would have done that? He was in a position where he, he, you know, effectively missed the first four races with the top team, so he had nothing to lose. Whether he finished third, fourth, fifth, or sixth in the world championship is totally irrelevant to him. So he could afford to do those sort of things because it actually doesn't matter. And I think. You know, you you can't underestimate that mindset for the driver. When when you're in a, when you're actually looking at the points table, then it matters. He's not. It it didn't matter to him this year. Yeah, I think we just have to wait and see. You know yeah. how it plays out. It's just, it's just it's interesting to to me that at the moment when he's been in those situations, he has kind of overreached a little bit in that moment. And what we wait to see is whether that's just his youth and inexperience whether that just naturally works itself out or whether there is some kind of you know mental flaw that in the moment he just can't accept 
you know, getting something wrong or being defeated. But, you know, we'll see. Certainly the potential is there. And even his own teammate, uh, Daniel Ricciardo, said, you know, it's scary to think how good he might become. He's not the complete package yet, but he's, he's coming very close very quickly. Obviously, we've talked a lot about Verstappen. Haven't talked so much about Daniel Ricciardo. Obviously, this is perhaps a good time to look at your top 10 drivers of the season, Ben, or certainly the top four, which is a Mercedes Red Bull lockout. Number one, Daniel Ricciardo. Number two, Lewis Hamilton. Number three, Max Verstappen. Number four, Nico Rosberg. So that gives us a little bit of an interesting framework there. But given what we've just said about Max Verstappen, about how remarkable he's been, the fact that Daniel Ricciardo is number one, obviously only won one race this year, could have won, certainly could, should have probably won two, could have won Spain as well as Monaco. So let's say there were he got one win with a bit of luck and there were two left on the table that through circumstances beyond his control he missed out on. So why why is Daniel Ricciardo the, num- the number one of the year in, in your mind? And then perhaps if we see if ev- if everyone agrees with that, I think we've already had Lawrence nominating Lewis Hamilton as number one and uh, Kareem might have a different opinion. So just talk us through how you came to that ranking and a little bit about Ricciardo's strengths. Yeah, well, it, you know, you, you've named obviously the main contenders there. Um, you know, R- Rosberg I kind of ruled out because although he won the World Championship, I think you know, in terms of performance, if you compare qualifying and, you know, races where he was better than Hamilton, Hamilton was overall better than Rosberg. I don't think anyone would really disagree with that assessment, even though he fell short in the championship table. Uh, Hamilton was number one last year, but for me, Hamilton wasn't as good as he has been uh, previously. He made too many mistakes himself, so that ruled him out really as being number one. Um, So then it's Verstappen, I think, you know, the peaks were really impressive, but again, as I've kind of mentioned he's still got to iron out some creases there's still a few um, moments where he makes mistakes in battle uh, you know throws races away he came into the pits randomly in Austin I remember as well you know I think he could become the best driver in the world very soon but I don't think he's quite there yet Ricardo, for me didn't make the same you know amount of headlines as Verstappen for obvious reasons but the consistency of you know, elite performance that he achieved this year was so impressive. People forget that before Monaco, where you know he became the only non-Mercedes driver to get a pole position and should have won that race, you know, it was taken away from him by Red Bull's mistake in the pits. Nothing that he did. Uh, he was on the front row in China. Okay, Lewis Hamilton wasn't in that session, but it was ahead of both Ferraris at the start of the season. The Ferrari was a faster car than the Red Bull until uh, Renault bought their mid-season engine update at Monaco. Uh, Ricardo was mighty, but it's you know, easy to forget the early parts of the season. But he maintained that level you know, through the season. He didn't win as many races as he did in 2014 when he was last number one in the rankings. But I think he performed better than he did in 2014. Could have easily won as many races in an inferior car. And I think of all the drivers who haven't really had a chance to fight for a world championship yet, he's the one who's the most complete and proved it this year. I kind of agree with you in, ten- in terms of Daniel outperforming Max in terms of being the most complete. I think that pole lap in Monaco, he talks about how much pressure he put on himself to to do well on there. He really wanted that pole. So obviously when the win got taken away from him, that really hurt him. And I I wonder how much that would have affected him in the few races thereafter because he obviously came out and spoke out about how he felt uh, about it. But then he hit back, like you say, and he's been strong all year. So, you know, I'd agree with that. Hang on, I thought you said Lewis was your number one. I read it it in the magazine. I agree that he was better than Max. So who's your number one? Lewis is still my number one. Yeah. How about you, Karim? Do you agree with Ricardo? I I agree with Ricardo. Because I think you have to look at the season on the whole at 21 races. um, While Ben was speaking there, I was trying to think of a bad Ricardo weekend. And I can't think of one. And I was trying to think of a weak Ricardo weekend, you know, relative to his teammate. And again, apart from that race in Interlagos, where we talked about before, I can't actually think of a, a weekend where Daniel's Daniel's particularly underperformed, and even if, even his bad weekends were a seven out of ten. You know, a fourth yeah. place or a fifth the, place. The only, I mean, there were two. One was perhaps Abu Dhabi because he he did get beaten in the race by Max, from, despite Max coming from behind in turn one. Um, Although that was partly down to there's a pit a, stop that played that, that a big was role a, that was a slightly odd strategic decision yeah. as well from Red Bull, wasn't it? Because they had him on the, they had him on the but, but, but when you yeah. look at but when you look at the pace that they had, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Max's pace on used tires, completely worn out tires, was still better than Daniel's on on fresh soft. So I think there were there were probably two races where you can conclusively say he was outperformed for pace. Um, if you take because F1 nowadays, is they're racing against the circumstances as much as racing against each other. They're racing against what tyres they're on at what stage of the race. Um, 
but yeah, I, I agree with Ben. Consist if you look at consistent performance, which is what I think you need to look for when you're looking at rankings across the season, I can't think of a particularly weak Ricardo weekend. So yeah, well deserved. I think the good thing with Ricardo is he's he's kind of got everything. He's incredibly quick. He does a mega qualifying lap. He strings together races. He manages to tie as well. He's a fantastic overtaker, which I think people often seem to forget about. You know, Max Verstappen can pull some good moves, but Ricardo's very, very good on this. Very so you look at it and you think, actually, where where's the weakness with Dan and Ricardo? And if, if the, the biggest weakness we can find is obviously Interlagos wasn't perfect for him, but he still came away with a, a but decent I, result. I think actually, so, Ed, it's a good point because one thing that some of the Red Bull engineers have said this year is that perhaps one part where he is consistently not being as good as Max is actually tyre management, which we know in this Pirelli era of F1 is absolutely critical. Yes, we've sort of established that Max is exceptionally good at it, but that is perhaps, I know, something Red Bull are going to focus on with Daniel over the winters to improve his tyre management. Coming back to that feel of, of on the brakes under overtaking, uh, I think you and I talked about it in Mexico that incident with Vettel on the final lap where you know he lunged That's down incredible. the inside. I, I would probably say ninety five percent of the grid would have ended up in both cars yeah. in a collision and out of the Grand Prix. But you know you could see Daniel locking off the brakes, locking off the brakes, and he just got you know they both got through the corner. It was exceptional. It was absolutely. When you think of how many little movements and adjustments yes. and inputs on multi, no, not just the steering wheel, not you know, brake, everything. You know that that's kind of when you see how good these guys are to be able to deal, process all of that, and kind of get around the corner, worry about what the other car's doing, get with a bit of constant. That that was pretty remarkable. Yeah, for me, I mean, we were asked as part of our you know upcoming autosport.com mini review of the season you know what's our best overtake of the year and unfortunately that can't count because it didn't end up being an overtake because Vettel held the position Um, but for me that was the best racing moment I thought the two of them uh, going wheel to wheel in that corner absolutely perfect judgment on both counts I thought that was that was mighty and it was a shame then to see you know it penalized ultimately under the regulations so it seems we all agreed Ricardo's a legitimate choice as number one even if uh, you know if obviously there's some disagreement I guess it's worth mentioning uh, the Autosport team boss's top 10 as well which is uh, a secret ballot so we, we don't say the individual uh, results but we we asked uh, a relevant team boss at each team so we had Toto Wolf, Christian Horner, Maurizio Riva Bene, Vijay Malia, Claire Williams, Eric Bouillet, Franz Tost, Gunter Steiner, Frederick Vasseur, Manisha Kaltenborn and Dave Ryan so basically the boss from each of the 11 teams to, to vote for their top 10 they were awarded points based on the F1 point system and it came up with a very interesting ranking uh, they agree with uh, with Lawrence had Lewis Hamilton as, as the as the number well, does one Lawrence agree with them well there, there we go there, there's a question right. there's a question it's a it's a virtuous circle. They each agree with each other. But Lewis Hamilton won it dominantly, 234 points. Number two in the ranking was Max Verstappen with 183. So the overall ranking is Hamilton, Verstappen, Rosberg third, Ricardo, Vettel, Alonso sixth, Raikkonen, Perez, Bottas, and Carlos Sainz Jr. tenth. So a few little differences there. Uh, but it's just interesting to see how the team bosses perceive it. Obviously, they know their own driver's performances uh, far more than all of their own little biases, I guess, as, as everyone everyone did. But I guess that supports our point about the impact Verstappen has made and maybe perhaps how easy it is to overlook what Danny Ricciardo's done. You know, he's 101 points behind Lewis Hamilton in this, uh, in this ranking. So I guess, while it disagrees with ours, it also supports some of the points we're making about who's very obtrusively doing things and who's perhaps going about their business in a slightly more quiet but in some ways more productive way most most of the names i think are about right aren't they or they tally it's more the positions that that fluctuate so i think the team bosses are paying you know paying attention but they, they're gonna, i think they're going to likely be distracted by the you know the the broader headlines aren't they? they're going to the max verstappen impact was so big you can't fail to notice it but they're not going to sit there yeah. and analyze the they, they, don't, they, they don't have time to sit and look at who qualified on the front row in china no so you know, I think I think it's 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 always interesting and nice to see their their view. But I agree with Ben. I think you know the time they've got 
to sort of do a ranking. They're going to look at the headlines and Max has grabbed a lot of them <laughs> recently. But equally, they're the people who are going to be employing drivers in the future. So you'd kind yeah. of hope that they yeah, would have... Yeah, but in the time that... When they when it comes down to employing drivers, they've got engineers who run a load of numbers and analysis and stuff. I strongly suspect they haven't done that for... <laughs> You mean, I'd, I'd, are I'd, you I'd, suggesting the team bosses will have not used the full might of their race teams, dedicated a week's resource to calculating these their, their votes? Because I, I, I frankly can't believe that. You know, I, this, this is surely the most important. I, thing. I remember one, uh, you know, seasoned F1 insider at, at one team who, who remained nameless. He said uh, to me that you'd be amazed at how little uh, teams know about what's going on with other teams. They might know a lot about their own team and their own driver's performance and everything else but when it comes to knowing what's going on outside their own circle they don't they're clueless <laughs> his so words not mine so there we go you heard it here first f1 team boss is clueless and i guess before we we bring our first half of this season so when review gets refused <laughs> lunch next season isn't he so before we bring this first half of our season review to a close i think it's just worth sort of finishing our roundup of uh of the, the championship battle and, and red bull and mercedes just talking about Rosberg's decision to retire. We haven't really talked about that a great deal. Do we do we understand we understand it? Extraordinary, I think is is and confusing. I I mean as a racing driver I still I still can't fully understand it or appreciate it. Can't you a retired racing driver? No. Or do you just look like one? No. I'm a former His phone wouldn't be on driver. if he was retired. current racing driver. Uh, is that, are you announcing your retirement from Formula 1? No. <laughs> ever the racing driver ever, ever the, the racing, racing driver. driver no that's what I mean you know you spend you know ever since you're a kid you, you, your whole life revolves around chasing the opportunity to drive in the best car possible in the best category possible and he's got that and to to walk away from that is you know everyone sort of there's a lot of people who are hailing it as a heroic decision and things and you know maybe in, in certain light, it is for some people, but I, I still find it really confusing. You know, I still think he's going to wake up one day in February and go, "What have I done?" But he, you know, I think he he's also quite a strong-minded person, so he's made it. He's not going to reverse it. He's not going to change his mind. But I I find it really confusing. I really still find it confusing. I can I can kind of see both sides. I think. You know, to most racing drivers would think, well, you're in the best car, you've just won the world championship. You know, how many more could you win? How many more races could you win? You've got years ahead of you. Why are you stopping now? And obviously, he signed a new contract in the summer, so he expected to carry on for at least two more seasons. Well, he, he suggested that the thought only really starts to appear in his mind after the Japanese Grand Prix, yeah. which was the point where he had the championship the was in his, his hand because he only needed, I think, three second places and a third would have guaranteed it. Exactly. Whatever so, Hamilton and was. I think that's, you know, you can believe that nobody really knew this was coming because of that. You believe that his thought process has been honest. He intended to carry on, probably because he didn't think he was going to win the championship this year. And, you know, if you imagine at Hungary, you know, Hamilton had turned around that early deficit, was now leading the championship. So Rosberg's probably thinking, here we go again. So I'm going to need another two years at least to try and get on top of him. And now suddenly he's ended up in a situation where he's won the championship, perhaps against his own expectations. And he's probably thinking, well, I've done it. This was my ambition. So... Where do I go next? I've never thought of Rosberg as somebody who's absolutely, you know, Formula One is the be all and end all. Some drivers are like that. You know, Vettel wants to win as many championships as he can. Hamilton probably has a target. Rosberg, I've always felt as this guy with a kind of sense of the bigger picture of life that Formula One's just part of it, something that he's ended up doing as a profession. Maybe he fancies a career change. I've always kind of got that sense as well. And obviously, when his daughter came along and he's got this, he's very family orientated, it just, it just made clear that F1 isn't all, you know, the be all and end all. And I think he, he entered motor racing with the goal of winning the world title. I don't think he entered it in, in the hope of winning lots of titles. I think he just wanted that one title. And he's obviously gone and done that. And he's, we've talked about how he's had to work so hard to get to that point. Then it must just be a massive relief once you've done it, and you just think, "Well, do I want to put myself through that again?" So I do, I do understand why he's done it. You also wonder how much that that knowledge that if he won it, he was going to have his his mic drop moment after the end of the season when he just said, "Right, I'm off." How much did that play a part in feeding in the strength to close out those four races? You know, he said it was like he was competing with lead weights <laughs> on his shoulder. You know, he did a really good job. Four second places in a Mercedes is basically a a part par, performance, really, yeah. but. Given what was at stake, you know, did he need that to to be able to to do it, to be able to survive the sort of hundred minutes of hell in Abu Dhabi when 
he said he many times he felt he thought he'd lost the world championship in that race. You know, did did he need that to cling on to? And is he basically spent a spent force after that? Well, he said he said, didn't he, after Abu Dhabi, that the the clarity of knowing it would probably be his last race helped him through the through the mire. So I think they are you know intrinsically linked he decided if i win the world champ after japan he decided if i win the world championship i might actually stop and retire from formula one and then knowing that he was on the brink of winning the world championship and therefore he would retire he said it it released some of that stress and allowed him to go in to the race with the clearest mindset so yeah maybe he did need that certainty of the next step in order to to close the deal i think it's a massive sort of backhanded compliment to lewis hamilton as well because I think it it says it says it took so much out of me to operate at 100% every single day of the year to beat this bloke who could probably operate at 95% most of the time and and still be my equal if not better and I think that's a huge compliment to Hamilton just you know from from in some ways saying it took I don't think I could put myself through it again one more time to try and beat this bloke and he was explicit. He said that he did. He yeah. just does, doesn't just doesn't want to put himself through that again. And, and Rosberg, I think, knew uh, and probably would now admit that Hamilton was the superior driver. I remember a, a comment he made way back in China. Hamilton came into the race facing a grid penalty because Mercedes found a problem with his gearbox from Bahrain, and you know the journalists were asking. Nico, you know, it's going to be Hamilton saying this is an easy race for you because you're going to have pole, whatever happens, and you can just walk walks into the distance. And Rosberg said, well, uh, Lewis, that starts sixth is still going to be a contender for victory. And I thought, well, you know, the weekend hasn't started yet and you're assuming with a five-place grid penalty that Hamilton's going to start sixth, which means you're assuming ordinarily he'd be fastest and take pole. And he didn't say that explicitly, but I felt that that was indicative of his mindset. He's coming into every race really thinking that all things being equal, Lewis is going to beat me. So I'm going to always have to dig that extra bit deeper to get one over him. And that takes its toll over time, doesn't it? God, no wonder you're a journalist and I'm not. You you know, you find two or two and you've made 22 out of that one. I would have just gone, well, he's just gone. Even if he gets poorly, he gets five place penalty. I, I would never have sort of thought beyond it. But there you go. Well, here's, here's another one for you. Obviously, Rosberg's somebody who's got some broad interest in life. I remember the first time I met Nico Rosberg, it was 15 years ago, the first time he went to the Autosport Awards, and I was on chauffeur duty picking up Keki and Nico. Obviously, Nico was in Formula BMW at the time. He'd been, what, 17 at the time? And he was more interested in kind of where the various universities he was looking at were in in, in London, which I was of no use helping him with, so I didn't really know the area at that time. And obviously, later on, he was offered a place at Imperial College London, wasn't he? Um, which he didn't take because obviously racing took over. But he's always struck me as someone who's had other things in life, which is quite it's quite nice in a way. You sort of say, actually, do you know, he's climbed that mountain. Yeah, an absolute great racing driver wins multiple championships. They Winning once isn't enough for them. It does seem to be enough for Rosberg, so that disqualifies him from being kind of one of the great legends. But the counterpoint is you have a guy like the, the sort of horrible story of Michael Schumacher, won seven world championships, set new records, you know, by many measures, the greatest Grand Prix driver of all time, had the ill-fated comeback, and then what happened after? And, you know, you've kind of got the kind of counterpoint, sort of the guy who couldn't find something else to do, and, and that chance has in some ways been taken away from him, very sadly. So, in a way, I quite like what Nico's done. It, it's shown that he's not he's not become a kind of slave to the to the objective he, he chose. And, yeah, ideally, you all want PC people to defend the championship if you can. That That's what you like to see. But I, I think he's sincere in what he's done and I think probably he's he's right for what he's done the question is if in four years time he tries to make a comeback because he's realised you're a long time retired I also wonder and I wonder what you guys think is that has he got an is there an element of I no longer want to be Nico Rosberg's son of world champion Keke Rosberg you know he's now I wonder if there's somewhere in the back of his mind He's always been son of world champion or, or teammate to world champion, and now he's he's achieved that goal of I'm I'm a world champion in my own right. I'm no longer just the son of a world champion, and I, I think I do wonder if there's an element of that somewhere. You know, ever since he was a kid, it's been you're Nico Rosberg, you're the son of Keki Rosberg, world champion, and it, he's no longer that. And I think uh, I don't know. Do you think there's an element of that? 
Um, I'm not sure. I think um, what, what it do, what that does say is there's all, these re- these reasons are always complicated. Yeah, that's just to, to throw that. Often it all seems very binary and simple, isn't it? But th- any big decision in life for anyone is complicated, isn't it? So uh, it's just worth bearing that in mind. Yeah, I think um, you know what we said earlier about you know how much it took out of him to achieve this life's ambition is maybe the key point. I think if he'd won this world championship, having definitively outperformed Hamilton. Uh, over the balance of the season, he might look at it a bit differently. He might think, oh, actually, I've cracked this now. And now I've won the World Championship. That releases the pressure of trying to become world champion. And he might move on to a greater plane of performance. But I think he kind of knows that, not that he lucked into it, because that's unfair, but he knows that circumstances played into him winning the championship that weren't all of his own making. And I think he kind of maybe feels like, well, I've, I've done it. I didn't expect to do it. So now I'm, you know... I'm going to, not going to settle for being second again. I might as well just move on and try and do something else. He, you know, he can't rule out a comeback to some form of racing later if he gets bored. I mean, he's a world champion after all, so he's going to be able to walk into most levels of motorsport and do something, maybe but even come back to Formula he 1. Very he very clearly said it. he's retired from Formula 1 and he's not ruling out other racing in the future. I don't think we'll see him do anything next year, but yeah. he, he was very precise in ruling that out. There's no ambiguity that he may come back and do something yeah so you know you never know things change don't they but um yeah like you say i think he's he's sincere in in his decision at this moment and yeah we have to wish him all the best well i think having uh, having talked about basically the top four drivers that brings the first part of our season review podcast to an end it's probably going to be a 500 part series given that we've still got to talk about ferrari sebastian vettel kimi raikkonen force india williams mclaren Anna, sauber toros no, there's a lot more to get through. So we're going to dispatch Corinne Chandock to put the uh, put the kettle on and get some fresh biscuits. Join us for the next edition, where hopefully we will get through the rest of the season without uh, taking up too many hours. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. American Giant is the leading manufacturer of American-made clothing. When you choose American Giant, you are saying yes to clothes made under the highest standards, ones that support sustainable jobs, living wages, safe working conditions, and use high-quality materials. Plus, they have a full range of timeless, durable basics for men and women. Wear your values in the new year. Get 20% off with code NY23 at American-Giant.com. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Code NY23. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.